Hi there, this is Kent Roundy, a USH med student. Got a group of students that were with me yesterday. And we're back again today to talk a, a little bit more about things you might see in the emergency room. Let's start off with introductions. Yeah, I'm Rhett Dotson. I'm a third year student at Rocky Vista University. I'm Cam Meekham. I'm a fourth year medical student at Rocky Vista. I'm Angelo Garcia, also a third year medical student at Rocky Vista University. So. Thanks guys for coming here. We've got uh, Cam. Cam is a fourth year medical student. He introduced himself uh, yesterday a little bit more and talked about plans he has to pursue emergency medicine. And part of his approach here on this rotation is to uh, better understand the intersection between psychiatric presentations in the emergency department and how to manage those. So topic today. How about if you do an introduction for us? Yeah, so uh, topic today, um, in in line with our, our previous uh, podcast that we did on PCP intoxication, today I'd like to talk a little bit more about sympathomimetic drugs of abuse uh, broadly, and then we'll focus in on one of those drugs in particular to kind of highlight some of the intricacies of, uh, of this family, so to speak. And because I, I panicked, and said, oh my gosh, this is way too much. I think the introduction will be a case presentation, right? So I, I think we're starting off with the differential is a sympathomimetic yeah. uh, case presentation, and then we'll get more specific after that. So let's let's start off with that case presentation. All right. So one of, uh, I would say that this is a pretty classic case presentation. I'm sure that there's a, a wide variety of ways uh, that it may present, but um, you know, in the emergency department, you have a 23-year-old male uh, pr who presents with um, psychomotor agitation, um, violent behavior, uh, and EMS had picked him up on the side of the road because he was getting in a fight and uh, had collapsed. Um, they brought him in. Uh, patient has high blood pressure, uh, or moderately high blood pressure, maybe 130s over mid-80s. Um, he has a, he's tachycardic, um, and, uh, his ECG is showing just classic sinus tachycardia. Uh, as you walk in and you're doing your initial physical exam, uh, patient is, uh, being, uh, restrained by, uh, EMS and security officers. Um, you can see, uh, faintly that uh, there's mild dilation of pupils. Uh, he's fairly diaphoretic um, and also expressing that acute agitated behavior. Um, so that's a fairly, a fairly uh, straightforward presentation for a sympathomimetic uh, type of drug intoxication. Um, so in terms of looking at it this way, there's a couple of things that we would want on our differential diagnosis and that's kind of the the main focus for, uh, for emer emergency medicine is we want to cast a broad net so we're not missing anything and then kind of sift things out. So we will want to, though it's less likely, some, some things uh, that could cause this altered mental status, uh, some type of encephalopathy, uh, you know, infection or viral or something like that, um, could be uh, you know, IV drug use causing a brain abscess, those are, are less likely. <clears throat> More likely would be the different types of drugs of abuse that could potentiate this. Uh, and so most of those would be methamphetamine, cocaine, um, 
M, uh, MDMA or ecstasy uh, and PCP that we uh, had talked about the other day as well as bath salts. And so that kind of takes us to the point of, you know, what, what should we be doing at this point? What would our workup kind of look like? Um, and so I, I want to kind of put the third years on the spot if I can. <laughs> I, hope, I hope you're okay with that, Dr. Roundy. I would just be interested what some of their perspective would be in terms of what type of labs should we order? What type of imaging, if, if it's necessary? Um, you know, how, how would we go about helping to kind of get to the bottom of, of this patient? So what do you think, Rhett? Okay. Um... I one lab that pops to mind is um, you'd have symptoms that could be similar to a pheochromocytoma. So sure. you could look at like metanephrins, um, break down products that way. Okay. Um, sure. Angelo, what's what's one thought you got? Um, since he's very hypertensive, I'd might, I'd probably want to run a CT scan to see if there's any um, indications of an ischemic or hemorrhagic infarct. Sure. Okay. Dr. Roundy, any uh, any ideas? <laughs> yeah, um, you know, usually these workups were done before we saw patients. <laughs> That's so, all right. So I'm gonna I'm gonna cheat and say, generally speaking, something you said yesterday struck me very much as I listened to the podcast again, and that is that even with all the tools at our disposal. A diagnosis is still a clinical decision based on the information that's available. And at the moment with uh, the differential we have, it's, it's very, very broad. And one of the things we didn't talk about yesterday was the clinical history and the importance of the clinical history. And I think at this moment, you know, we, we have somebody that we assume can be providing us some information. I think we can ask even just a few questions that might help us. We can do a physical exam, see if there are tracks on the arms that would suggest higher risk of, of the kinds of infections you mentioned. Perhaps we could look for a vagal nerve stimulator implanted. Uh, epilepsy would be yeah. a reasonable explanation for uh, this presentation, I think, um, and, and many other causes of delirium, right? I, th I think there's a very, very broad mnemonic. Um, as far as Tesco, though, if, if this is somebody that's uh, mid-twenties kind of patient, more likely male than female, I'm, I'm going to be thinking about urine drug screens quite, quite quickly. And the other thing that always surprises me is it seems like the EMS guys usually figure things out before we do. So I'm going to be asking EMS what, what they think is going on and why. And, and they might have found the patient with syringes by them or, or something along the lines that gives them some clues that we won't have, right? So that's, that's my thinking. I, I'm looking for the shortcuts that uh, may or may not be the right way, but that's, what I, that's where my thinking goes. I think that's great. I, I agree. I'm looking for those shortcuts that are going to give me any type of uh, advantage over this situation. So um, one other thing I hadn't mentioned uh, when we had talked about PCP, but that is always indicated for emergency medicine is uh, the ABCs, your primary assessment. So we can see, or in our mind's eye, his airway is protected, he is breathing, and he's got full circulation. Yeah. Uh, a more detailed secondary assessment should be done when appropriate uh, to evaluate for any, any type of other you know, malignant processes taking place, if there is some occult bleeding somewhere. But that can usually be done after we help to get this guy calmed down a bit. And I think you're making the point, same thing here. Yes, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Very, very, very well said. While we're picking up things from yesterday, I noticed that I made a fairly significant mistake. We've changed the language of um, drug abuse to a substance misuse. And so uh, with that prompt, if you guys catch me uh, 
using the phrase um, amphetamine or methamphetamine abuse after this point it's a coke to whoever catches me first okay because <laughs> that's that's a big deal right we want to we yeah. want to have the language that's helpful to the solution of the process and uh, that I I mean as I think about the language of abuse versus misuse there's something in that that strikes me as being a more helpful way of thinking about the the problem at hand and how it might be tackled so yeah uh, I'll just throw that out as uh as the here's your chance to get a Diet Coke out of me. <laughs> Sounds good. Um, so as, as far as kind of picking up where we left off, the main things that we'd want to focus on is we can, we can administer a benzodiazepine to this patient uh, in whatever route will be tolerated, whether it's by mouth, uh, IM, or if we could do it IV. Ideally, I think that in this situation, it'd probably be an IM injection just to help them get them calmed down. After that point, you can run you know, drug screens. You'd wanna take a look at uh, blood glucose levels, um, any other types of intoxications or, or um, toxicities like acetaminophen or salicylates. Uh, and then just the classics, C, uh, CMP, looking at electrolytes, liver and things like that, kidney function, and, and uh, serum creatinine levels, or sorry, uh, serum CK levels, uh, creatine phosphokinase, um, CPK, and then uh, uh, any type of you know other uh, blood tests to evaluate for tissue damage. That's one of the, the main issues that we have. So that would be maybe a, a, an acute look into the ED as far as how we can help these, pa uh, these patients uh, in the short term. So I was intrigued by a case series that I saw. Again, the, the case series uh, we talked about yesterday with PCP was so compelling to me. And another case series today looked at nearly 400 patients three-fourths of these patients, more than three-fourths of these patients, uh, over 80% of them come in agitated. Mm -hmm. And I was struck that the first thing we're not, that they didn't treat, it, the first thing they didn't treat was hypertension, right? Sure. The first thing they treated was agitation, and that makes a lot of sense. I think you spoke to that when you're talking about uh, mechanical restraints as a way to ensure that nobody is hurt in the emergency department. Um, the other thing that I noticed from, from that article was that most of those patients were able to take oral benzodiazepines and that rest was the the treatment so time right yeah. letting this come out of the system and I think that if if I'm thinking of the same article that you are they looked at the average stay for most of these patients too and it ranged around 14 hours to kind of help them come down uh, in the world of emergency medicine that is a long time but in the world of making sure that your patient is better as you know, before they leave the emergency department, it's a small price, I would say, that they had to pay. If I understand correctly, 24 hours is a magic number in the emergency room, and so you're still within that 24 hour Absolutely. Period. What I noticed was that uh, only a couple of, well, only, um, that's probably not the right way to think of this, two deaths. So if you have somebody showing up at the emergency room, there's uh, about one out of every 200 patients is going to die maybe from that based on these numbers, right? And uh, one was uh, subarachnoid hemorrhage, which I think speaks to what you were saying, Angelo. Sure. And uh, the second one was myocardial infarction. And those seem to be the things that, that show up. Yeah. However, the thing that we didn't see in a lot of the things that, that I read, some of, the, some of the other things I saw, is that kidney damage really seems to be that hidden danger. And there's, how it's, I would say that there are two reasons for that. Um, one, it could be the unopposed uh, vasoconstrictive, vasoconstrictive actions of 
the neurotransmitter, specifically norepinephrine that is released in the system. We know that sympathomimetics by nature increase a variety of three main neurotransmitters and, uh, and signalers, norepinephrine, dopamine, and serotonin. Um, and so the acute kidney damage could come from that. The other, and I would, I would venture to guess that maybe this happens just as much as the AKI, would be the rhabdomyolysis. Um, I, I've seen plenty of patients uh, either in, in, uh, as an inpatient uh, medical student or in the emergency department who have come in uh, after a bender, uh, combined drinking alcohol as well as sympathomimetic abuse, laying out in the sun all day, and they've presented to the emergency department, um, you know, in, in a similar fashion. Yeah, so. very, very important. One of the management strategies that I saw that was not based on that case series was hydration, anticonvulsants, time. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to, I want to kind of do a hard reset here. Okay. And I want to ensure that nobody has to go more than about 15 minutes to find high yield principles that will be tested in shelf and board exams. So high yield principles that seem to show up in uh, examinations, in test prep material, what are those that you guys are aware of? Let's start with you, Rat. Yeah, so one high yield that we have talked about is um, the hypertensive emergency. Um, and that's just, even though that's not like in the literature weighted as heavily, that's just a classic question that shows up again and again and again. Um, is how do you go ahead and treat that like um, either hypertensive emergency or malignant hypertension where you're getting into organ damage. Um, so that would be a classic question to see. So as, as far as the treatment for that, uh, as we've kind of gone through this, uh, we know that like Esmolol yeah, and Yeah, so we would use a combination of nitroprusside and Esmolol um, is a really good treatment option. Another one possibility is labetalol mm -hmm. um, because it's nonspecific and has a little bit of alpha blocking as well as the beta-1 and beta-2 blocking. And what we've noticed too is most of the time when we administer benzodiazepines to help bring them down, that blood pressure tends to drop too. So it's, it's one of those that is a rare case, but definitely as far as test questions, I would say it's pretty high yield. Another one that, that I would thought of too is more on the side of cocaine intoxication. We might go over cocaine a little bit later, but any type of young, healthy patient who is presenting with what looks like uh, acute coronary syndrome or an acute MI with zero uh, history of, of heart disease, um, that's, that's pretty classic for a, a vasoconstrictive event of, of uh, cocaine intoxication. Good. I think there's one other question that sometimes shows up and it might be the difference in action between cocaine and amphetamines. Uh, does anybody want to tackle that one? I see sure. people going, I don't know. I, I'm more than happy to. I want to make sure that... Uh, Angela, you got Angela that one? You're leaning forward. I see it. I see the, the readiness. So from what I remember about the cocaine intoxication or misuse um, was that it usually there's usually a blockage or an inactivation of the um, norepinephrine transporter, which keeps the norepinephrine and other similar um, substances in the synaptic cleft longer, which potentiates that effect of you know the increased blood pressure leading to hypertension, which could lead to malignant hypertension and, and organ damage in addition to the many other effects that we've mentioned previously. Sounds about right. And that compares to 
uh, amphetamines, which I understand also blocks reuptake, not necessarily just of the norepinephrine reuptake inhibitor, or the norepinephrine reuptake channel, but also serotonin, dopamine, and then it does something kind of weird. It doesn't just block that, it reverses the pump, yeah. right? So you're kicking stuff from in, in the cell, out of the cell, and uh, depleting those catecholamines pretty rapidly. Yeah, I, th I think mainly about uh, cocaine as kind of a plug. I think uh, about um, methamphetamine as kind of like punching a hole in the presynaptic membrane and then bathing the neurons in those, those uh, neurotransmitters. So. Now the other thing that I saw is, is not only does it increase the release by reversing that transporter, it looks like it's a monoamine oxidase inhibitor as well. Yes. Right. So, so not only are they, you're punching the hole in the in the membrane. You're also, so to speak, right. Yeah. You're also <laughs> keeping that stuff out there indefinitely. And and uh, I, I think we're probably going to talk about this later. But maybe some of the neuronal damages associated to that catecholamine uh, depletion and that exposure. And we'll we'll jump into that in a little bit. I think. Yeah. There's some compelling evidence there. Let's, uh, let's talk about cocaine just generally, or not cocaine, I'm sorry, methamphetamine uh, generally. You sent me a report called the Methamphetamine Research Report, updated October 2019. And uh, this is published by who, do you know? So I found it on the National Institute of Dr on Drug Abuse um, through uh, the Nas National Institute of Health. Um, and it's, it's a fairly uh, simple yet comprehensive uh, perspective of methamphetamine um, abuse in the United States and gives us some, some really good information as background and kind of moving forward. By the way, we have some uh, construction happening in our ceiling and, and uh, that's, that's uh, not a third year medical student making <laughs> those noises, just, just to be clear. Um, so uses fairly widespread. I was intrigued that it said that it's almost as big a crisis as the opioid crisis and a bigger crisis in some places. Yeah. And that seems to be more west of the Mississippi. You were in Austin and felt like it was more predominant there than uh, opioids. Yeah, so I, I would say I had a chance to, to kind of corner one of my attendings. Um, we had a, a patient come in with an acute intoxication and so I kind of took the chance to pelts him with some questions and he had said uh, that the main or the biggest drug of abuse in that region at that time was methamphetamine and uh, he had said mainly because of its uh, it's just how inexpensive it was mm -hmm. how easy it was to access um, that it made it very difficult for a lot of people who were struggling with misuse uh, to to not take advantage of you know of the opportunity it looks like this problem is getting better. That's, that's kind of what it was showing to me. Even though getting better still means that about one out of every 200 eighth graders have tried meth in the last year. Yeah, which is alarming. That scares me, mm -hmm. right? And, and it's the same in, what, 10th graders, 12th graders. That seems to be a number yeah. that uh, stays pretty consistent. I was also um, a little bit shocked by the language they used about crime waves being associated with amphetamine use or methamphetamine use. They, I think they use the, the phrase crime wave. Hmm. Um, so it, it has these pretty widespread uh, consequences. They mentioned the medical health of the individual and the societal costs. Uh, do you want to tackle those uh, medical 
implications, and, and we might come back to those a little bit more specifically when we talk later about neurotransmitter effects and maybe microglia, but let's, let's talk about bigger picture medical stuff right now. I think that just with the pervasiveness of, of um, you know, methamphetamine being used, uh, I think it poses a significant uh, difficulty for our acute care setting specifically. Um, you think about the amount of cost that most of uh, this generates between, just from admitting a patient to the hospital, getting, uh, using resources in order to make sure that they get stabilized, um, but then with this backhanded also understanding that most of these patients won't be able to pay for their care. Sadly enough, I would say that, at least in my experience, the majority of these patients are either homeless or, or living in, in some pretty rough means. Um, and so in terms of being able to cover those costs, uh, it makes it difficult for us physicians in that our main focus is making sure that we take care of the patient in front of us, no matter whether they can pay for the, the care or not. Um, and so it, it's, it can, I think, especially in the acute setting, kind of potentiate some of those financial issues. Not even mentioning, you know, the acute insult that it takes on the patient's health right. and, you know, the downstream effect uh, for them as they move forward. Uh, as you'd mentioned, we'll, we'll probably talk about this here in a bit, um, uh, specifically with neuronal pathways and central nervous system uh, necrosis in, in certain areas. It can lead to some fairly devastating results for some people, and not even just immediately, but years down the road. You mentioned to me cognitive changes, brain changes. Mm -hmm. I don't know that I was aware of memory loss. So these were things pointed out in the in the uh, methamphetamine research report: memory loss, malnutrition, mm -hmm. severe dental problems. Yes. Right? I think we're all aware of those, but we don't think about the cost of those in terms of the effect on somebody's health. Hepatitis transmission, HIV and AIDS transmission, uh, renal problems, uh, CVA problems, right, cardiovascular problems. So these, these medical problems seem to be acute problems and chronic problems both. Absolutely. It seems like there was a, a link between connective tissue long-term damage. That's interesting. I, I don't know if I, was, if I just didn't pick that out in reading or not. Yeah, I, I, I was making some leaps that are probably inaccurate, but uh, skin and connective tissue seem to be affected over time. You get the sores on your, on your oh, skin. Yeah. And of course, uh, teeth, uh, you know, they're, they just yeah. fall out, right? And, and I, from my reading, most of those, we could draw a correlation between just poor dental hygiene and things. But then one of the other main uh, factors of, of methamphetamine abuse, uh, misuse rather, I guess Thank I you. owe you a, a diet coke. No, now. but it's <laughs> me owing you. Um, is that uh, you can have uh, some psychotic features that pre present, specifically kind of the feeling of bugs crawling under your skin. And so whether it's a, a, a biochemical or, you know, a physiologic uh, sequelae of using it, or it's the psychosis that leads to, you know, the damage, it, it's, it's a significant thing. In fact, the, the uh, literature even states that even years afterwards, it can still be present in these patients causing them issues. I noticed that one of the articles I reviewed said that it takes that there are biomarkers, and we talked about biomarkers yeah. a little bit uh, not long ago, that biomarkers used to determine neuronal injury clear up six months to a year after use. And that just speaks to the neuroplasticity, I feel like, of, of the human brain. We don't often think about that. But, uh, but in terms of 
seeing those difficulties in memory and and uh, other decision making, yeah, yeah. And gray matter volume with these correlating areas of the brain, they they did see that within I think I I think I saw like 14 months, most of the time that that it has uh, recovered, but again in worst case scenario it, it really never does. I want to go back over the societal costs that it mentioned, and and one of the one of the things that I think the DSM four seemed to accentuate more than the DSM five was the idea. Maybe this is my imagination, but the idea that there's this gradual pathway to destruction in what was then called um, dependence as opposed to abuse, substance dependence, which was you lose your family, you lose your job, you lose your relationships that are important. Um, everything just kind of slowly disappears from you. And I think that's a good description of what happens with amphetamines is that things that are very important seem to lose importance. Decision making is impaired. The desire to use again is incredibly reinforced with this uh, substance. And so um, malnutrition mm -hmm. is not uncommon. But that also affects children, right? You, if you're not eating, you don't think about feeding the kids. And so child abuse, child neglect, unemployment, and, and again, the cost of this is not zero, the cost of getting the substance if you're unemployed. Uh, they mentioned in this area specifically crime waves, which I thought was you know, a strong statement. Yeah. One of the things that, that was pointed out to me that I was not aware of was the effect that cutting down the access to pseudoephedrine has had. Hmm. Talk to me about that. So cutting down the access to pseudoephedrine, that, so I guess I'll back up a little bit. Uh, pseudoephedrine uh, has been used in nasal decongestants and, and other over-the-counter medications to help with common cold or sinus uh, issues um, and, and, and wasn't uncommon to see in your pharmacy. Um, by decreasing or by, by using pseudoephedrine, you can actually make... Uh, methamphetamine. Anybody who's watched the show uh, Breaking Bad or something like that would would be able to, to maybe talk towards that. But um, we were, or the 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 government was was keying in on this fact and massive consumption of, of these factors in using uh, them to, to manufacture methamphetamine. That's that's not uncommon. I think all of us are pretty well aware of that. One thing that we had talked about that was super interesting is that uh, the main sources of methamphetamine in the United States are coming from south of the border, from Mexico. Trans, it's called transnational criminal organizations, right? These are not, just to be very clear, the way that this article is written, it's not written as these are Mexican drug lords, right? right correct, this, yeah. These are transnational organizations where the methamphetamine is being, uh, was being, yeah. Uh, generated in Mexico, and yet, I and, think you were headed to this point. Yeah, and what we were seeing is that, uh, let's see, I had it sitting right in front of me. We were seeing that, uh, that there's a decrease in the availability uh, in, in Mexico for these, these priming substances or these precursors, which is massive. We, I don't think that we hear about that enough. We uh, don't hear about the good things that our neighbors do, do no. we? No, I thought that was really, really cool. And, and it's really forced the, the transnational criminal organizations to search for other solutions to making drugs, and, and those have become P2P, I think is what the process is called, yeah. so the precursor to pseudoephedrine now. Interestingly enough, uh, methamphetamine was at one point 
a decongestant and bronchial bronchial inhaler That's as well, right. right? Yeah. So so this was used, and I don't know if that was over the counter or not. I just don't. Oh, I, don't I don't know the answer to that. Um, tell me about how methamphetamine is used and how that affects the high that somebody has. So this is one of those interesting principles that um, you know it. it it can get into some really complex um, neuroanatomy and and some complex co- uh, compensation that the body does. Um, but really, what what I'd like to focus on maybe with this is just the route of ingestion. And so, uh, methamphetamine can be uh, can be taken in several forms. Um, let's see. I had. I'm sorry. I had a list of it here on my iPad. <laughs> it's oral. They can take it. Um, you know, uh, in um, dissolved into uh, into some water. Um, they can inject it, snort it, and smoke it. What we're seeing though is that on the regular, that the smoking and injection causes a flash, I guess is what they use in uh, the, the verbiage that they use in, in the literature, kind of a, a flash euphoric almost uh, feeling. What they're finding with the oral ingestion um, is that it's more of a steady increase that leads to a euphoria. The, the onset though with injection and smoking is within minutes where the oral ingestion tends to be about 15 to 25 minutes, if I remember correctly. Yeah, I think I think uh, smoking and injection is three to five minutes, maybe. Yeah. And then snorting and oral is 15 to 20. Yeah. Or, or but I may have the snorting number wrong. It may be a five-minute thing. I'm I'm not sure. Uh, clearly, a difference in in the effect and the intensity, I think. When we talk about the intoxication, this reminded me somewhat of the description that was given for vencyclidine or PCP, euphoria, heightened awareness of self, self self-confidence, increased sex drive, and um, actually increased sexual performance as well as decreased appetite. And who doesn't want those things? Sure. (laughs) I I mean, the cost to get those is pretty high here, but who, who doesn't want that, right? Yeah. Um, I think the next thing I want to just point out is a few of the differences between cocaine and methamphetamine because I think those do have some implications later. Uh, We talked about the differences in how they affect dopamine. Mm -hmm. Um, The the routes for delivery are quite similar. They're used very similarly, right? Um, What about the original uses for each of these uh, substances. I noticed that they both are stimulants, but that cocaine is also an anesthetic. Yeah, and so, and, and even today, if I if I remember correctly, cocaine is still used as an anesthetic in, in some situations and uh, in some operations. Um, but the, the use of it is, has definitely decreased over time. Um, I would say that, uh, and, the, and then we've already chatted about maybe the bronchodilation and decongestions uh, uh, of methamphetamine. I would say that the biggest difference between these two, I, I like to think on the micro level and then leading to the macro, it, is their mechanism of actions where, where cocaine is more of a uh, inhibitor um, and methamphetamine, as we had mentioned, is more of a kind of Flutter. Almost a flutter, right? It yeah. reverses that, that enzymatic process. 
Um, and Half-Life so, too. Yeah. Half-Life is different. Well, and, and then that was going to be my other point, is that you see that cocaine, with uh, cocaine intoxications, they can, really that euphoria, or euphoric state is only 15 or 20 minutes. It's, it's super short acting. Where with methamphetamine, it can be up to 12 hours. It can be an extended period of time that these patients are dealing with, uh, you know, with, with that intoxication. Withdrawal is maybe a similar feature. Correct. Uh, depression, anxiety, fatigue. Yeah, big ones. Increased appetite. Um, I think one of the, the other high-yield ones that you might run into uh, would be dreaming. I don't know if you've ever <laughs> read that. Cocaine, uh, uh, a cocaine uh, withdrawal symptom is actually uh, being able to dream again. So Interesting. I did not know that. that. Uh, I, I guess maybe a less important difference between cocaine and methamphetamines is that cocaine is a plant, is derived from a plant, yeah, and methamphetamine is synthesized. Yeah. One of the reasons, there, there's a hypothesis, I, it seems like it makes a lot of sense, why uh, methamphetamine is so difficult to stop. Do you want to talk about that a little bit, or does anybody else want to jump in on yeah. that? Anybody have that off the top of their head? I have it written down, just in case. <laughs> <laughs> um, go, go for it. Any of you guys? No? All right. Yeah. Do you want to jump in on it or do you want me so, to? So, yeah, yeah, one of the, the main things that I've read from the literature that makes it so difficult to, to stop um, is really keying in on those neuronal pathways um, and, and the inhibition pathway specifically. Um, cocaine kind of works on a similar level, but they find that there's uh, some significant neural pruning that takes place with methamphetamine, chronic methamphetamine use. And so those inhibitory pathways or those pathways that we use to help uh, um, avoid, um, what, would I, what would you call it, just... To, to inhibit behaviors? Yeah, yeah, to avoid uh, behavior inhibition um, so there's are, are broken are down, and so it makes, it makes it difficult, especially with chronic methamphetamine users, to, to be able to stop. So my, my understanding is there might be two aspects to that. One is the one you're talking about, which is the impairment in the uh, prefrontal cortex where, it, yep. where, where we have decision-making. I think I've heard that term sometimes referred to as salience. How important is something in reality, right? And mm -hmm. if you're choosing between taking care of your child or using meth, uh, salience would... I think the idea behind that is that you would choose to take care of your child, mm -hmm. but that gets disrupted with amphetamines. In addition to the disruption of decision-making and the importance of those relative decisions, um, my understanding is that that ventral tegmental area to the nucleus accumbens becomes um, like hot-wired almost, yeah. so, that, so that it says to you that is the best thing ever. Whether or not your experience was great, you're getting wired now to believe that experience was great or that, yeah. that your body um, intuitively, in, intuitively believes it was great. So, so there's that uh, wiring of the VTA to nucleus accumbens and then there's the impairment in the decision-making and choices. Mm -hmm. it, it's a double whammy. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about longer effects now because I think this opens up some of the most interesting aspects of treatment. So long-term effects, we've hinted at these. Yeah. Tell me about the model that you saw that was the best explanation for a lot of the long-term cognitive effects. Well, again, I, I believe that it's it really is focused on kind of that ma uh, microscopic view of what's taking place 
intracellularly or on the cellular level. Um, I feel like it's a great way to explain behaviors. And so in, in one of the articles that they used, uh, they, they showed, um, at least tried to elucidate the mapping and cortical gray matter deficits as well as the hippocampal deficits that take place with chronic methamphetamine use. Some of the, the most important areas or the, the anatomical regions that they saw uh, decrease the most was the cingulate gyrus, the subgenual uh, cortex, the paralimbic belts, uh, which form the ring around the, uh, as I'm reading it, ring of cortex encircling the corpus callosum. So right in kind of that central uh, brain area. The issue with this is that that's where a lot of the interconnections take place in that prefrontal cortex and between hemispheres that help to, to hardwire those decision-making capacities. So with that in mind, we're starting to see that not only are those behaviors taking a hit, but we're also seeing a lot of even some psychoses that, that start to come out. Um, we see significant anxiety, confusion, insomnia, mood disturbances, and violent behavior, even when they're not in acutely intoxicated. Um, that can go for months to years. Months to years, yeah. Extended periods of times. Paranoia, vis visual and auditory hallucinations and delusion, uh, delusions. And, and I think that, again, I want to hit on this because I feel like it's, it's high yield for methamphetamine. That delusion of the sensation of insects kind of crawling under your skin is just pretty classic for, for methamphetamine intoxication. But now we're seeing that it could be present even without the intoxication being in place. So just as an add-on to that, I think that's called parasitosis. Yeah, thank you. Um, I, I think. And it seems to me that you see that probably more commonly as a shared delusional disorder, also known as? <laughs> I asked you this before, didn't I? Mm -hmm. I think it's Frenched. Yeah. Do you remember that, Cam? Uh, I think it's the... Yeah, you Foli got it. Foliadu. Foliadu, that's yeah. it. Yeah, okay. so shared delusional disorder. Uh, I did, I, I once saw a couple of truckers who had been using amphetamines together and they were pulling pieces of skin off their wow. their uh, cuticles, right? And, and setting it down and worried that they had some strange parasite, very paranoid. Um, so I, I always use that as my index for, that's the test question, right? That's, that's the one that, that comes up. So one of the other stories that I thought was very interesting was not just the, the changes in these structures, but what, what how, how does that respond, right? Where does that lead to? So we think that this chronic uh, monoamine depletion might be having some effects on the microglia. Yeah. So the, the literature had stated that the microglial cells... Um, there's quite a bit of negative effects on, on those non-neural brain cells. And so um, it's, just as a quick review, those microglial cells are there to help support brain health. Um, they're there kind of as like gatekeepers or guards defending against uh, infections and, and helping to kind of prune uh, uh, neurons that have been damaged. And so uh, as I'll read this here really quick. A study using brain imaging found more than double the level of microglial cells in patients who previously misused methamphetamine compared to people with no history of methamphetamine misuse. So we're seeing that the assaults that methamphetamine takes on the central nervous system that our central nervous system can respond 
by doubling its efforts and helping to decrease whatever inflammatory, well, I shouldn't say maybe inflammatory, but whatever process is taking place there. And it looks like that doubling has negative consequences. Yes. Right, it's, it's not that, that our body chooses to respond in a way that helps given the circumstances, it's responding in a way for typical circumstances, but it's uh, counter help, uh, counter therapeutic. Can, yeah. the, can your own body be counter therapeutic? I don't know the answer to that. Well, and I would. I, yeah. That's what yeah. I was going to say. I'd yeah. venture to guess autoimmune. Because it be. sounds really to me, it sounds like essentially central nervous autoimmunity. Like yeah. I mean, that's not. That's just a an analogy that mm -hmm. that comes really close to hitting it because yeah. glial cells. That's what they do. Yeah, they're like the macrophages of the brain, yeah. and if you if you have double the activity of them, like you said before, then we see, you know, increased inflammation in the brain, which would obviously lead to damage to those high prized structures in there. Highly prized structures is that what you said? Yeah, I, I like that. That's a great. I, I, I like that a lot. I I, I want to take one half skip back. Mm -hmm. The article, the article that we have from NIDA also indicated that years after the psychosis, a stressful event can bring that back. Which is so classic to what we've talked about, I feel like. It's, it's so in your circle uh, of these almost a two-hit, maybe even a third hit at this point, where you can, you can just rev those, those psychotic features back up. I've noticed, and of course I can't go a podcast without talking about schizophrenia, no matter what the topic is. <laughs> but we see the same thing in schizophrenia, Absolutely. where uh, a very stressful event can cause a tremendous spike in, in hallucinations, delusions, so forth. Well, and it, I think it's, if, maybe if I can take a, a little bit of, of leniency here, I think it just shows the result of those catecholamines on these neurotransmitters in these specific areas of the brain. There's that, there is a connection there. There's a connection, and there's something in the pathway, and yeah. there's something about the way we think about it, and so forth. Treatment. Not of the emergency room crisis at this point. How do we help people who have substance misuse disorders so that they can return to their family, have meaningful relationships with their children and loved ones, um, be able to get back into the workforce, feel, feel that satisfaction of, of, of having a job, having um, income, having independence, and so forth. Where do we start with that? What do you think? Uh, well, my understanding is that the treatments are typically non-pharmacologic. Um, so we're looking at um, behavioral therapy um, amongst many other things. And, and I know that I read about some promising new stuff, but uh, we, we want the board answer. So the board answer right now is uh, is therapy. That's that's what we're doing for these patients to try and help them out. And apparently it does work, um, given the right right resources. Angela, you want to add anything to that? Um, no, I do think cognitive behavioral therapy is or is a good um, method we can use to treat these patients, and specifically um, targeting their reasons for why they are doing or why they are misusing this substance. I wish that I had a better understanding of the, there are so many therapies right now, and they seem to have some very specific kinds of benefits. I know that the article that we looked at was actually fairly hopeful, mm -hmm. right? Hey, listen, it's a problem, but we do have some treatments, and, and gosh, you know what, they work, they work. Don't always work, mm -hmm. like every treatment out there, 
but we at least need to get people into treatment and I'll make a plug for motivational interviewing right there, right? How do you help people find that pathway? Uh, the article specifically mentioned something called the matrix model, 16 weeks, focused on behavioral treatments, family education, individual therapy, which I assume is, has some overlap with behavioral treatments. I'm not entirely sure how they distinguish those. 12-step programs, there's a lot of data out there that 12-step programs are as effective as any other approach. Drug testing, which makes a lot of sense. Um, and non-drug related activities. That's really interesting because it sounds a little bit of like the approach that we have here on the unit. For treatment of schizophrenia, <laughs> right? Absolutely. So we're crowding out the things that are unhelpful with things that are meaningful for mm -hmm. people, right? I, I thought the same thing. I, I wondered if you would kind of key in on that. Well, I, I feel like uh, like many things as we're dealing with the organ between the ears, I think that, that um, as, as I've observed a lot of the patients here on the unit with you, Dr. Roundy, that being able to help redirect and refocus um, that neurological power that they have, helping them to understand through either CBT or, or any other uh, you know, uh, therapy methods, helping them that they have that power to be able to redirect. Um, and then using awesome activities in order to help focus on the great things outside of maybe the voices or this overwhelming urge to take part in, in something that you know is already not going to be beneficial in uh, drug misuse or whatever it may be. Um, you know, I, I think that it's, it's something that we can all take and apply moving forward. Just yesterday, we went on a hike up Provo Canyon with several of our, our patients uh, and our rec therapy team. And... I, I would have to say that every patient I talked to, uh, as, I, as we were walking along the trail, I asked them, hey, how are you doing? Um, asked them about medications and, and any issues they were having, but then I asked them, how are you feeling right now? And each one of them said, refreshed. I just feel so great. I feel grounded was some, one that one of the patients had used. Those activities, I feel like, can be just as therapeutic uh, in, in augmenting the benefits of those medications. It's, it's amazing to me, um, I think I've mentioned this before, we went to the Beck Institute as a team a number of years ago, and we thought we were going there for cognitive behavioral therapy. It turned out to be somewhat slightly different, which was a, a focus in part on something that might be called behavioral activation. I don't think that's entirely fair. It's uh, obviously a little more complicated than that, but I can't believe the difference between somebody who's on the unit and affected by the voices and somebody who is the same person, but now becomes their, uh, I think what the Beck Institute would call their adaptive self, when they're out walking and, and, and enjoying the life that we're built to enjoy, exactly. right? Exactly. Um, and I think it's probably the same with, I mean, we've kind of deviated into schizophrenia because it's the ground we, we walk on more commonly, but when we saw that, I mean, it's just like, gosh, that makes sense. You know, yeah. live the life that you're choosing to live, that you want to live. Find the goals that are important to you. Find the replacement behaviors that are meaningful and refocus to those activities and learn how to think about the way you think, right? mm -hmm. which is, I mean, we, we all benefit I from think that. We, yeah, we all <laughs> could use some of that for sure. There was something that I didn't know about, and I didn't have a chance to look this up. Contingency management, there's a, apparently some plans that are M-I-E-D-A-R and... Uh, where tangible incentives are provided for staying clean and sober. 
and I, I don't know what those are. I know there are some drug courts as well that are involved. Those are negative contingencies, right? Mm -hmm. If you don't fulfill the, the requirements of the drug testing, then, then bad things happen. Let's jump to biological treatments. Now, I, I thought this was fascinating because I, I mean, I, I haven't thought about this quite mm -hmm. the way that it was presented to me. So there are biological treatments that maybe, I, my model has been, we use naltrexone to change the cravings that somebody has for alcohol, or we use naltrexone to limit the effect of uh, opioids on somebody so that they don't get a high. And, and so I've always thought about blockade of the receptor, right, activity on the human body rather than anything else. But this is a little different. Yeah, if, and if I'm keying into the same things that, that you are in, in terms of biologics and, and changing and kind of keying in on, on some of those, those areas, it's really remarkable kind of this emerging field of going outside of of just the neural network that we would assume is being stimulated by methamphetamine and using drugs like, as I was reading through the article, uh, using drugs like methadone or buprenorphine to treat, that we usually use to treat opioid use disorder, but we're trying to key in on that dopaminergic side in helping to decrease the cravings there. Or other monoamine targets. We know that methamphetamine withdrawal symptoms are super similar to depression and and so we can try and use some serotonin and norepinephrine uh, to, to augment maybe some of those uh, or ameliorate some of those, uh, those withdrawal symptoms. So I, I like the idea. I don't know in terms of clinical efficacy where we're at with some of those, but I think that like Rhett was saying, it's super promising that it's not just, hey, you're done, get over the symptoms, let's do some therapy and build your life back. It's like, it's more of a perspective of, I want to meet you halfway here. I understand that there's more that's maybe outside your control. Let me see what I can do to help kind of mitigate some of that. Uh, and, I, and that's kind of how I felt. Some of the things that were presented um, by this methamphetamine research project that NIDA had, uh, they did talk about, hey, let's ameliorate the effects of the condition, and, and it's not just the focus on Correct. let's stop your cravings, yeah. right? And I can kind of see how the naltrexone and the buprenorphine might work on that. It looks like there's some work being done on GABA and glutamate mm -hmm. systems that they mentioned. They also mentioned uh, hormones like oxytocin and uh, cholecystokinin-8. But they also mentioned two other molecules, I thought with a little more um, attention. and. Yeah, uh, and so I actually looked those up. There's a place you can go to find a list of all drugs that are in development. There's a consortium of pharmaceutical companies that many companies participate in called uh, Pharma, P-H-R-M-A, I think. Um, and that's the initials for it. I don't remember the, the what those initials stand for. And at any given time, you can look and see what drugs are in development and what phase of development they're in. So two of the drugs that they pointed out that, that I noticed were um, minocycline, which may treat microglial activation. So maybe we can knock back that microglial activation, which is probably brain toxic at the level it's, it's acting at that point. Or the other one that they pointed out was something called ibudilast, I-B-U-D-I-L-A-S-T, which uh, according to one of the websites I went to was used 
primarily in Japan as an anti-inflammatory agent. Um, but this is a biological, right? Yeah. And the other name for it, if you're looking on the internet, is MN-166. And this molecule is fascinating. So it's, a, it's in phase two trials right now. We've got a ways to go still. But it looks like there's something about microglial inhibit, uh, inhibition that may help the downstream effects of somebody who has already used, right? It's not like, hey, just stop so you stop the damage. It's let's stop now, we can mitigate the damage, we can stop the process that could keep going. And it looks like for some reason, it may change cravings. There was one article that hinted at that, but I think that data is very, very early. The other medication trial that I found that is not listed, so there are only two medications that I found that are currently in, in phase one, two, three trials. The other one is currently in phase one and phase two trials, and it's called IXT-M200, and it's a chimeric monoclonal antibody. And what it does is it grabs a hold of the methamphetamine when it comes into the body and keeps the uh, intensity of the intoxication from getting too high. Now what I don't know is how far along they are in these, but I read one of the proof of concept articles with early reports, and what they're able to show is that uh, vaccinations, which is an idea, might work, um, but something that may even be more helpful because of the consistent response, right? We don't know which immune response we'll get from a, from a, a vaccination, uh, is apparently placing these monoclonal antibodies in the blood, and they last a long time. They don't just disappear overnight, right? They stick around for a while. And so you could have these monoclonal antibody um, injections over time. And of course that uh, is different than a, an a, than a vaccine because a vaccine you use once in theory. Mm -hmm. And the, I assume infusions of the monoclonal antibodies would be over and over and over. So there would be um, some sort of uh, desire to continue the patent on those and to maintain the price on those mm -hmm. and, and each time you drop the flag, so to speak, in a taxi, you get $2, right, or $5, depending on what city you're in. And it's kind of like that. Every time you drop the flag, you get paid. So I assume there's probably an economic benefit in addition to maybe some science behind the idea of the repeated infusions of the monoclonal antibodies. We'll see where that goes. I can imagine a scenario where you overwhelm the system. Right? We talk about naltrexone that way and opioids where we see patients who keep using until they um, overcome the threshold of suboxone. Uh, binding and then suddenly they kind of stop breathing and I can imagine that you overwhelm the monoclonal antibodies if you try hard enough um, but I don't know I mean there are questions yeah. that I just don't know the answer to and I'm looking forward to seeing where this goes yeah it should be very very compelling information and and it always seems uh, Dr. Roundy like you go one step further than us students which is always the best thing because uh, you get to kind of break open some of this really cool new information and and I think that as medical students, we get really excited about some of these pioneering effects and just uh, really glad that uh, you continually bring those to the podcast. So, Oh, and neurofeedback and RTMS we didn't mention. Oh, so yeah, non-pharmaceuticals um, that are not necessarily um, traditional therapies, right? Yeah. Big, big topic. Yes, massive topic. Massive topic. Um, again, reiterating... 23-year-old man walks into the emergency room agitated, perhaps febrile, perhaps tachycardic, perhaps... Um, uh, possibly hypertensive. 
perhaps their eyes are dilated mm -hmm. and they're hitting on the nurses. Mm -hmm. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Best way to treat always benzodiazepines, number one. You want to look out for some of the common side of, uh, common complications of rhabdomyolysis and acute kidney injury by using uh, normal saline. Um, and then uh, as far as some of the other, I'm trying to think of the other high yield topics here. For hypertensive, malignant hypertension or hypertensive emergency, you can use, don't go just for the beta blockers, go for uh, a broad approach of nitroprusside, esmolol, or you can use labetalol. I better back up just a little bit because I think the nurses are in the rooms more than the physicians. Physicians will get hit on as well, right? Oh, for sure, yeah. That yeah, and, and, and I'm not entirely sure that it's, that the methamphetamine will cause that because I think the agitation <laughs> overwhelms that at the time. Yeah, sure. So I'm referring to the euphoria that they might have. Yeah. But I think at the point that uh, people are coming into the emergency room, they're, they're more agitated than euphoric at that point. So uh, I stand very corrected. <laughs> and also somebody might perceive in that a sexist statement, which is that uh, nurses are female only, but as you know here, we have uh, a very even split between male and female nurses. Sure. So. Um, Things you just wish you hadn't said. And, well, and just yeah. to, I mean, not to belabor the point, but there were plenty of times I was hit on by both men and women, and there were plenty of male and female nurses that experienced the exact same uh, encounters. So, yeah, right. I, I, I don't think not to worry. Yeah, I, I, I know that quite often just saying that the nurses will be hit on immediately sets up a paradigm sure. with a 23-year-old male and women. But sure. I think we all know that that's not accurate. That Correct. And, and this is probably a topic that... Uh, could be explored further in another podcast, and that is how to how to manage those those situations. I've talked to my peers in other fields uh, about this, and it's it's ubiquitous, right? Um, I think that our female counterparts are probably sexually harassed, um, not probably, but continually, yeah. and and how that's addressed, and how we uh, as physicians have uh, uniformity, and how we create a a statement that says that's not right and how we uh, work to dispel the common myths about physician or men even though there are four of us that are men in this group um, we've had many other groups that are are more are comprised more of women I think your class is now more men than women but I think the University of Utah uh, has more women than men in the class so mm -hmm. so there's there's something that there's efforts that are being there's made, efforts that are being made sure. not only there but in our language and how we consider hitting on other people, we don't necessarily think that of as men on women, women on men, um, men patients on women nurses, right? Those, yeah. are, those are stereotypes that one might immediately come to, but those are, are clearly changing. Yeah, uh, definitely an, a great topic, maybe for, you know, a, an, an upcoming podcast. I think it's, it's time that we start, you know, taking a look at that and, and start evaluating it. So I agree, I think it'd be good. How, how do we change our stereotypes? How do we, uh, how do we as physicians stand up? for each other in, in the things that are important to our self-identity, and, and I, I think it's a great topic. Awesome. Uh, last, last thoughts on amphetamines before we team out. Um, don't do them, those are, those are not good drugs. <laughs> <laughs> I echo what Red says, 100%. Yeah. yeah, I agree with both of my colleagues. Don't do them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I know that Nancy Reagan said don't do it, right? It's, it's so complicated. Right? It's so, mm -hmm. I, it's, I, I wish it were so easy, but I can uh, very much imagine that at age 23, if I had 
just happened to Ben offered those uh, stimulants at the wrong place or wrong time, mm-hmm. I don't think I would have ever left them because I love things that stimulate me. Yeah. And, and we'll talk about caffeine maybe uh, in the next podcast, right? Yeah, yes. That was a, a touchy subject that we, we had to approach. And so uh, <laughs> both of us as, you know, diehard Diet Coke fans, it's it's definitely we got to face the music at some point. <laughs> we will face the music. Uh, this one uh, more because of time. Uh, at one hour, guys, thank yeah. you so much. Team out. Team out. Team out. Team out.